Hello, and welcome to episode 108 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com. And in today's episode, I am very excited to be speaking with Jerry Marzorati. Jerry is the author of the new book, Seeing Serena, about Serena Williams. And he's also a contributing writer to The New Yorker and Racket Magazine. Jerry, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Uh, as I've as I've told you already before we started recording, I really enjoyed this book. I wasn't sure that I was up for 250 pages about someone who I have already been reading so much about for decades, but um, I absolutely think this is worth a read for everyone interested in tennis, even if you think you've already uh, learned enough about Serena Williams. And one thing that interested me, you didn't get any insider access for this book, or it just sounds like you didn't even really per- pursue it. That wasn't the sort of project you were undertaking here. Right. And you did get to talk to Serena over the course of the year you spent working on this book, but it was mostly through press conferences. And of course, we've been hearing a lot about tennis press conferences lately with Naomi Osaka. And it, it's limited, but it's still an opportunity. So what for a project like what you've done here, what is the value of having post-match match press conferences to talk to players? Yeah, well, I, I think that there's, they're still quite valuable, especially uh, when you can uh, be there in person, which has been limited uh, as a result of COVID. You know, I think you get a sense of, uh, first of all, you can, you can ask questions and I had questions I wanted to ask and they were often kinds of questions that were had nothing to do with the match Serena uh, had just played but in fact she was welcoming of those questions because they were they were they sort of engaged her in some way so um, that works I think you get a sense of uh, a player's mood you you know you just pick you pick up things in body language um, and also you, uh, especially with, say, if you're following Serena, I got to speak to her, uh, a lot of her opponents who you'd have to, uh, you have to uh, request uh, an interview with a, say, an unseated opponent. They wouldn't normally hold a press conference. So it often was just the opponent and myself in a little room with my tape recorder. It wasn't, there were no other reporters there. And I got a lot of insight into what it's like to play against uh, Serena uh, from young players, older veterans, that sort of thing. You know, I still think they're valuable. Any any good reporter would tell you that they would much uh, rather have more one-on-one time with a player, but that's not going to happen. Those days are gone. Those days of, you know, George Plimpton spending a summer with a, a subject he was writing about. Players have uh, their own ways of reaching their uh, fans and pleasing their sponsors without having being intermediated by reporters, uh, whether it's Instagram or or even the on-court interview, which you as a player can control. So uh, those days are gone. And and the presser, therefore, remains for those of us still writing about tennis uh, an important aspect. It seems like even though Naomi Osaka got fined for not doing her press conferences and tournaments still have that lever to pull, I mean, it, it seems like players have an increasing amount of power. Like you say, they have other routes to get their, their message out. And even if they do show up, they can, they can no comment you or one word answer you. So is there a degree to which you have to kind of 
intuit the rules or the limits to what these big stars will really engage with you about? Yeah, Jeff, but here's, here's what I would, you know, my 30,000 foot view of the situation is that increasingly um, sports journalism is going to going to really rely on commentary and thinking more than quoting athletes. I mean, there's always been the sort of bull Durham aspect to a, a presser. You have no idea if the player is telling you what they think really, or what they think uh, today is different than what they're going to think tomorrow. Uh, so, you know, just collecting quotes in, in, in a 20 minute uh, presser is, is really can only be one aspect of, of, of being a, a writer, uh, if you're going to write about tennis, but I, I, I still think, you know, I, well, I, well, here's what I would say though. I think, I think the, uh, to the extent that there's a possibility of increased access to these players, uh, it, it behooves ten, uh, editors, sports editors, editors of sports sections for news organizations to, uh, have younger, uh, uh, reporters, more women, more, uh, more, uh, reporters of color, it, it, uh, who, who just might vibe better with, uh, the, some of these, uh, younger players. Uh, but I mean, I think in the end, it, commentary and in, in writing, seeing Serena, I really relied more on commentary about, I spoke to people around her. I spoke to her, but I, you know, I, I would, it was really came down to th- trying to think hard about her and ha- and have something to say about her and as many uh, prismatic uh, uh, aspects as I could. It, I wonder from from an editor's perspective, I, I I definitely follow your logic about leaning more on commentary. The flip side to me of that is, it, so much commentary is crap. I mean, it's just. Everybody has an opinion. A lot of people have the ability to write a complete sentence, if not a particularly elegant one. And how do you? I mean, if you're not right, if you're not editing the New Yorker and have the luxury of you and Louisa Thomas on staff to to call upon, how do you ensure that you're you're providing commentary that that does rely on hard thinking, that, that does have some insight beyond just the sort of take based stuff that you see on Twitter? Yeah. I mean, it's true that social media means that there's commentary all over the place. You know, I still think that you know um, there are there are right there are people who write better than others, just as there are people who play tennis better than others, and there are pe- people who think harder than others. And uh, you know, it'll be up to uh, news organizations to try to find and cultivate those people. And uh, you know, I think actually by this. Tennis is tennis has got a fair amount of uh, uh, you know writers and 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 people doing commentary who who you know if you if you read them regularly you think well that's, I learned something uh, so it's not I think there's probably sports that are in worse shape but it's also tennis has a readership you know when I was an editor at the New York Times when I was on the masthead there we used to be able to get data on uh, at the very beginning of you know uh, uh the, the transition to digital media we were able to get some data and you know the people weren't reading the times sports section for for baseball football or basketball but they were reading the times sports section for tennis golf and the olympics and so i think there is a kind of 
educated public uh, that that wants to read about tennis. And, uh, you know, they those people actually, you know, get a fair amount of good commentary. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I, I just talked to, it's a couple months ago, maybe three months ago, I talked to Matt Futterman, who writes for the Times now, and, and he said the same thing, that it's it, it's still the case that, um, that New York Times readers are flocking to the tennis coverage to the extent that they're looking at expanding their tennis coverage further. Uh, and I think I've even seen that since then. There's the, there's a sure. lot of tennis in the New York Times, which is, yeah, which is very high quality, I think, in, in, in for the most part. Yep. Uh, now, with Serena, you're writing about more than just a sports star, more than just a tennis player. And I know sometimes you're you're getting an assignment to write for Racket about a tennis player and you write about their game. And, and that's it's very tennis focused. And Serena obviously transcends that. How how does the experience of researching and writing about someone with such a breadth of interests and a breadth of popularity differ from covering someone who's, let's say, just a tennis player? That's a good question. I, you know, I was drawn to write about her, uh, I think, precisely because of, uh, she's more complicated in that way than, uh, than even a lot of the greatest uh, tennis players of this era. There is the, you know, there's the whole uh, uh, question of race and the issue of race that was, you know, I felt was really a kind of uh, uh, privilege to be able to write about in the, in the moment that uh, we've been going through in this country post Ferguson. So that was part of it. And then there's just, you know, writing about her, uh, she was a sort of forerunner in the uh, construction of a a social media identity by, by an athlete. And this is going to be the way athletes uh, operate going forward. So here was a chance to really write about, um, what it is in, in some ways to be a sports star today, uh, which is to make sure that you are uh, on your social media platforms uh, as much as you're on court. So um, it, get, it, it just made for a richer uh, research and writing experience for me to be able to try to think about those things that uh, uh, there are uh, identities being constructed by athletes on these uh, social media platforms uh, that are just really different than um, the identity that would have been forged by, you know, uh, uh, Mickey Mantle, never mind uh, Babe Ruth. I mean, it's, it's, uh, they don't really depend on journalists at all anymore uh, uh, for this kind of, uh, uh, exposure. I mean, you know, Serena Williams is on the covers of fashion magazines where they don't even have anyone interviewing her anymore. She just uh, writes a statement, I assume, with her publicity team, and they publish that and a and a and pages and pages of photographs of her. So it's a it's a, it's almost like an infomercial um, in a in a fashion publication. So. They don't. They don't really need us anymore, which is is kind of too bad and liberating at the same time, I guess. Yeah, unless you want to go work for her PR team. <laughs> yeah, similar yes. skills. Well, I mean, I guess. the the sports. Um, you know, the WTA and the ATP have their own uh, 
have their own journalists and they're, and they're good journalists and they, you know, they write stories for their own uh, websites. And uh, you know, this is the, this is the new dispensation. So, yeah, I wanted, I, I wanted to mention that as well. It's interesting that you brought up Mickey Mantle because he's, he might be one of the most extreme examples of someone who did rely on journalists to get the story out, but those journalists were extremely friendly. I mean, I, I don't think we really learned about yeah. how much he drank or, I mean, really the fact that he was a, he was a human being with flaws until after he retired. Uh, That's right. And we still get some of the same thing from sports journalists. There's still some, some deification, but I think sports journalists now are less likely to, to treat someone as, as a one-dimensional hero type figure. But as you say, with, with the, with the organizations like ATP and WTA having their own journalists, um, that's, it's not moving in the other direction. Exactly. I'm not saying that people writing for them are, are just, uh, aren't covering the whole story, but there are limits to what they can do. So, I mean, is, I guess there's never really been a place for like adversarial journalism in the sports section, but to the extent there ever was, is that disappearing? Is, or is there any hope for, I don't know, investigative, investigative sports journalism when that's necessary? Well, I, I think there is a fair amount of investigative journalism in sports. It just doesn't focus on individual players. I think you're getting a lot of, of, of uh, really good journalism about uh, the business of sports and, and, and the problems uh, faced by the, uh, the organizations that, that run sports. I mean, I thought that uh, piece in the New York Times Magazine about, uh, about tennis was really good uh, about, you know, just explaining that the uh, Byzantine uh, structure of tennis of professional tennis and how the conflicts of interest that uh that pervade the sport and the uh tensions between uh, the haves and the have-nots uh uh among the players uh I, I think there's been good journalism about those kinds of things i think what you're not going to get anymore is you know that that profile of, uh, you know, I was at my tennis club up here in uh, Riverdale a couple of weeks ago talking to a former uh, writer for New York Magazine, retired now, but he was, was telling me he spent two months with Lendl to write a profile of Lendl, uh, you know, back in the day. Two months, you know, took, you know, was traveled with him, n- numerous dinners. <laughs> Uh, you know, just kind of hung out with uh, Ivan Lendl for two months. I mean, that's just not going to happen anymore. I mean, you can't, you know, you can't get in a room with a player without uh, their agent being there or some representative of their agent. So um, that kind of digging down uh, deep on an individual profile, I suspect, is something that you're not going to see much of anymore. But I do think with, you know, poking around at, at the, the power structures of these sports is going, going to continue to happen. So for players who don't yet have a book about them written by you, um, if we don't have these sort of in-depth profiles, what do we, what do we lose? What do fans not get about the sport that, that they used to get when journalists would tag along with Lendl for two months and the like? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I just believe that what you're seeing on Instagram, which is where most of these uh, tennis players are kind of shaping their identity, that that's a presentation. That's a that's a, a idealistic self presentation. Um, uh, that's just you know uh, uh, just a, a a glancing view of who a person is. That said, I do think there's a lot of um, for instance, this whole conversation about uh, mental health that uh, is now uh, front and center in tennis. I wonder if that would have, you know, come up uh, through uh, traditional journal journalism uh, practices. I mean, I think it would be quite awkward as a journalist to ask a player about their you know, are you, do you feel depressed or uh, are you seeking some sort of help for uh, your mental well-being? I think that would, <laughs> I, I don't know that I could have ever just straight up ever asked that of an athlete. And now that conversation has, did emerge on social uh, uh, media platforms and is now a, a really important, crucial uh, uh, conversation. So I just think, you know, it's changing and it's a new world and it's going to be, uh, you know, it's, it's just going to be different. And there'll be some, maybe there'll be some things gained and some, and some things lost. I mean, I, there's just the, the reading experience of that long, immersive profile is just a wonderful, wonderful thing when done well. And, and it's too bad there are, you know, there are players who I would love to read that kind of profile about, and we're probably just not going to get it. Is it partly harder because it's not as American or English speaking dominated anymore? So it's not like there's, it's harder for there to be a single language um, publication or set of journalists who can do that for everybody? That's an interesting question, Jeff. I, I don't know. I do think that from an American perspective, when you don't have American stars, um, it's uh, much more difficult to get the attention of the casual fan. Um, I think uh, uh, we in the United States are going to be blessed, knock on wood, if, you know, health holds in that, in the sense that, you know, uh, Coco Golf is going to be a big, big star. And, and I actually think Seb Korda could be uh, a big star too. He's, he really is um, the best prospect uh, uh, in American men's tennis in 15 or 20 years. So uh, uh, they may get those stars, but you, you know, you don't want to, you know, I, what are the TV ratings going to be like for the, uh, Wimbledon uh, women's final in the United States uh, without uh, as, as compared to the days when Venus or Serena uh, were in those finals. Uh, It's really going to be different. I want to ask you something I asked Matt Futterman, since you, you, you mentioned the promise of having young American stars. We had an American win a grand slam. She was young it was in Australia, so the time difference didn't help. But Sophia Kennan won a slam. Why isn't Sophia Kennan a bigger star? Or a bigger, let's say, a media star who can, you know, pull tennis interest along behind her the way that you're thinking that Coco Goff or Seb Korda could? Yeah, well, maybe it's, uh, well, I would point to a couple of 
factors. In truth, Jeff, I don't have, I don't know, but I would say that a couple of factors, I think uh, tennis uh, broadcasting has been so fixated on the same stars uh, for so long that they, they really uh, have not quite done the groundwork of preparing fandom for uh, uh, a new era. I mean, Coco Golf is kind of an outlier in this way because here she was a, you know, everybody loves the story of a 15 or 16 or 17 year old uh, uh, making a run, you know, during the first week of a, of a Grand Slam. And then when she beat uh, Venus uh, uh, at Wimbledon two years ago, that was just one of those kind of transformative moments. But I really don't think they've done a very good job. Not only, uh, I'm talking about tennis TV now, and they haven't done a very good job, not only of introducing these younger American players, but younger, younger players in general. I mean, I think, you know, the, the net, and, and I get it, right. I mean, they're, you know, they're sort of, they know there are fans out there who want to watch Fed and Nadal and, and Serena and Venus, and they give you that steady diet, but I don't think they've done a really good job of, of bringing along interest in these uh, younger players. And the, to the extent that when you're in Europe, you see that they've just done a better job that the fans are, are more knowledgeable um, uh, about the up and coming players. Do you think that's something that the European media does better or you know, why is it that European fans? Well, are I think you're, you know, in a lot of these countries after football, after soccer, tennis is the sport. Uh, you know, I recently had my, uh, my book about trying to become a senior tennis player uh, late to the ball. I, I recently was published in Italy in translation. And, I, and it got more reviews than than it got uh, in the United in the United States. There, every region in Italy has a, a regional uh, sports weekly um, tends to come out on Saturday, and it's you know it's these these are uh, avidly read, and 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 you have and, and tennis is a really big deal um, here. Tennis is a niche sport. Um, and, uh, you know, it, in it, within its niche, uh, I suspect it's, uh, I don't, I, I more than suspect, uh, it's, uh, it's fan base is older and, uh, you know, it's still, you know, they're, they're baby boomers like me who, you know, fell for tennis in the seventies and that, and, you know, all you have to do is go to the U S open and, and that's who you're surrounded with surrounded by the um uh so that you know i think that's that's part of it too but i i i you know i'm yeah i would like to see for instance uh more you know, more tournaments along the lines of the atp next gen i'd like to see one in the united states i'd like to see a night at the u.s open where they basically just uh 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 schedule matches of, of young unknown players on show courts and, and figure out a way to package it. So it seems sexy. I'm sure this could be done and, and, and just call more attention uh, to these younger players because it's, you know, one of the great stories in all of sports in any sport is the story of watching a young, 
uh, a young athlete become. Uh, you know, whether you're, you know, I can remember watching, uh, you know, Doc Gooden as a Mets fan, you know, in his rookie season. I mean, there's just that it's it's one of the great uh, joys of being a sports fan. So, you know, figuring out a way to highlight these younger players and maybe draw in some younger fans. I think it's a challenge, but I think it's one that that tennis ought to really be thinking hard about. It's actually one that maybe inadvertently, but Coco Goff kind of suggested an answer to that that problem. She she joked after her her match the other day. I think she was on center court before Roger Federer, so she joked that she was the warm up act. Right. And the way that the U.S. Open or any Slam tends to schedule things is they'll they'll figure out who the biggest names are and jam as many of them on the center court as they can, but. I mean, like you say, there's no law they have to do that. Like, sure, you have to have one marquee match for the people right. who are shelling out 500 bucks for a ticket. But why not have a warm up act and a marquee match on Ash instead of two marquee yeah. matches? Yeah, um, I agree. And I think, you know, I, you know, the idea that fans are going to be disappointed watching younger players, I think, is kind of is wrong. I think there's a way you you can guide uh, those fans to understand that this is really fun. Here's, here's a, a young player who's, who's was, you know, 300 in the world last year, and now they're 50. That's exciting. <laughs> so, and especially um, when they're from the home country. I mean, I've, I've, I've been to the U S open many times and I've never heard a fan say, Oh no, not another American. Oh, uh, absolutely. Every no, single no. fan will watch Americans every moment they're there. And I'm sure that's true for people in every country. Certainly Wimbledon has the same sort of vibe to it. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I, you know, it's funny. I feel the same way about doubles and mixed doubles that, you know, they're, they're all these players. They're all these people who play tennis. They mostly play doubles. And I think that, you know, they uh, and you see them crowding the outer courts at the U.S. Open. They love watching doubles. It's uh, it isn't what they play. I mean, it's like it's, you know, watching men's doubles is not like your rec doubles. But the thing is, they it's still fun. And uh, there are these aspects of the game that are, that are just uh, it seems to me are uh, more overlooked in this era, era because we've had this kind of alignment of the stars uh that is probably not going to happen again i think this is particularly true of the atp they the the, uh the the uh you know the power the power structures of the atp have essentially reified what is a a, the particulars of this era i mean it won't be repeated i mean you go back to 1999 uh men's tennis was really not that much fun, right? I mean, if you were watching Krejcik and Filipusis, but you were watching a bunch of big serves go down and you're going to get to a tie break and there's no rallies and the, you know, and Roger Federer comes along and, you know, Baghdadis and Nate uh, Hewitt and, and, they, and the game changes and it becomes this thing. And then Nadal and the federal rivalry and then Djokovic. And then you have this amazing era of tennis and these, these extraordinary tennis stars, but that's not going to be how it's going to be going forward. You know, you're going to be back to men's tennis where a bunch of guys have a handful of slam victories. And um, you know, I think it'll look much more like we've come to see the women's game. And, uh, 
and to me, the women's game is actually more interesting at this point. Um, for that reason, I just feel like I, I like the variety and, uh, uh, the variety of, you know, a lot more, uh, all court tennis, a lot more, uh, variety of who gets to the quarters. Uh, I think it's healthy. I was listening to uh, your conversation with Carl Bialik, which I think was at the end of 2018 um, on for his 30 love podcast. Right. And at that point, I, I think I remember correctly, you were saying that, that you pref- at that point you preferred the men's game with its rivalries and, and the women's game. You didn't use the word chaotic, but it sounded like it, you wanted more stalwarts, more, m- more good rivalries, more familiar faces at the top. Um, have you come around on that? Well, I think the difference over the last three years is what I was seeing in that moment when I spoke to Carl were players who I think should have been more consistently winning on the women's side. Uh, Garbina Muguruza said, I thought, you know, what is it about her? She can get, you know, she can have deep runs at uh, uh, grand slams and then she's just not focused uh, at other tournaments. By the way, it's something that Rafael Nadal said about her. So uh, I, I think there were these players who I thought, why aren't, why aren't you more consistent? I think what you have now is just this extraordinary depth. You have a wave of younger players who have since uh, emerged. Uh, Sabalenka, Barty, um, Coco, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're uh, Andreescu, uh, they are they are really good tennis players who uh, so things are going to be a little more scrambled. Um, I mean, you know, the men's game has, I think, uh, in uh, players like Rublev and Tsitsipas and uh, Medvedev, they do have a next wave uh, of interesting players. And uh, but I don't think any of them will be quite as dominant. I, I wish there were more uh rivalries in women's tennis i i like rivalries and i you know i wrote about Barty and sebalenka a month ago and i as a nascent uh rivalry um and i hope they i hope they meet in the final uh on saturday yeah me too absolutely i think it will it will help when the tour gets fully back to normal i guess it's been pretty yep. close to normal this year but when more players are playing more events then i mean you'll get I guess we might not happen this year, but as soon as we get a WTA tour finals again, Oh God, I'm setting aside that entire week to just watch every minute of every match. It's going to be amazing. Um, So back to Serena, Um, since we're talking about the, the big three or big four here, one of the things that, that sold me on your book in just the first few pages was the word you chose to describe what made Serena so interesting to you wasn't that she was necessarily the greatest of all time. It's that she was so consequential. And I I kept thinking about that through the whole book that that's, that's exactly right. It's exactly why she's important. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, What is it that makes Serena more consequential than any other tennis player right now? Yeah, I tried to, I tried to get beyond the goat, uh, question because I, I feel this emphasis on a number of Grand Slam wins has really distorted uh, how we think about greatness. And so I tried to come up with another word. By consequential, I mean, uh, you know, it's sort of table stakes that you are a great champion. And Serena Williams, I think, is the greatest champion in the women's game. 
But beyond that, what ha- have you changed the game in any way? Margaret Court was a great tennis player who did not alter the way the game was played. Uh, Serena and Venus Williams altered the way the game was played. I mean, I, I have a, a good conversation with Tracy Austin in the book where she talked about watching the two of them uh, when they were playing juniors in California. And, the, and they were the first women who could go from defense to offense in the corner. There, this had never, you know, basically it had been a game where you were, if, you, if, if someone had pinned you in the corner, you were going to lob, you're going to try to reset the point. Suddenly, here's somebody wailing on a forehand or a backhand on the run. And uh, that changed the game. They could hold serve uh, with an ease that hadn't been seen in the women's game. They just had big serves. Uh, and then sort of what's, uh, what's, the, what's the legacy? Um, how have they changed the game uh, as the game goes forward? And here you have Serena. I mean, you have Serena being, uh, you know, kind of name-checked by Naomi Osaka and Coco Golf, basically saying we wouldn't be here without Serena Williams. And by, the, by, by that, they mean not only how she plays, not only that uh, – she was a, a black woman who gave, you know, the, the black players or players of color the, the idea that they too could play tennis, but that their fathers basically um, uh, were also influenced by the whole uh, Richard, especially Naomi Osaka's father, influenced by the the Richard Williams, you know, uh, model to some degree, and uh, and so that to me that is, you know the Williams sisters and Serena in particular through her uh, many, many victories and her uh, longevity have, com- you know, completely changed the game. And if you go to look at a, a tw- uh, you know, uh, 10 to 12 year olds playing, you know, serious juniors in America, it's just, it's, it's more diverse than it ever would have been uh, without the Williams sisters. So that's what I mean by consequential. So since you're you're avoiding very intelligently, I'll say avoiding the the goat debate, I'll drag you into another obnoxious one. Um, if she's so consequential, is she the most consequential tennis player of all time? Yes, I well, I would say so. I would say you know, Billie Jean King certainly uh, it has been an incredibly consequential tennis player, but you know, she wasn't the champion uh, that. Uh, uh, Serena uh, has been um, that that's my opinion but I could if someone if someone were to make the case for Billie Jean and she's got an autobiography coming out later this year I mean there's no doubt that she there, w- there wouldn't be women's professional tennis or there might not be in its current form professional tennis without her but I really feel like she is uh, you know that she is a kind of and then there's the whole societal question what is the influence you've had beyond tennis and and here Serena is clearly a cultural icon for people who really aren't that interested in tennis including people who end up going to tennis tournaments to watch Serena Williams and I uh, have a conversation with these two women black women at the U.S. Open near the end of the book who have really not that much interest in tennis but they come out and sit 
in front of the the big jumbotron every time Serena plays or most every time she plays when she's in New York. And they sit there and they eat their sandwiches and drink their soft drinks and watch Serena Williams on the big screen. But they wouldn't do this if Serena Williams wasn't playing. So uh, she she's had that kind of influence. And, you know, the whole... Uh, whole conversation about body positivity it's it's hard to imagine it without serena she's a, she's in the middle of that so um that's also a part of what i mean by being consequential it's i'm glad you brought up the the different ways of experiencing serena as a fan because one thing that blew me away you shared some numbers in the book that uh, i think I think you said that some of Serena's matches against Venus were the most highly rated tennis matches in ESPN history or something like they were outrageously high numbers. That's right. And and since we're talking about finding ways of, of of making TV broadcasts more appealing to, to more fans and that sort of thing, if given these numbers, it seems like if Serena is playing, especially if Serena is playing Venus, it's, pretty much a guarantee that the audience is huge and the audience consists of a lot of people who don't watch a lot of tennis aren't necessarily tuning in to, to watch forehands and backhands per se. Do you think the broadcast should reflect that and be different some way in some way from how they would be if it wasn't Serena playing? You know, the, 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 yeah, the broadcasters, I mean, they, the, uh, that was, there was a U.S. open match, uh, God, it must be 15 years ago, uh, you know, between Venus and Serena that they moved to Saturday night uh, because they understood that this was going to be a big um, TV draw. It's hard to know who, who I really do think Coco Golf is going to be that kind of uh, player. I think Naomi Osaka may already be that kind of player. I, I don't know that we 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 will know for another year or two, but they, they, they already have, I think, glimmerings of, well, it's beyond glimmerings for Naomi Osaka. I mean, you know, she's already become the kind of pop culture figure uh, that Serena Williams uh, has been. And I think Coco Golf will be the same type of um, uh, pop culture figure. I mean, in different ways. I mean, um, you know, one of the things that's changed is the sort of uh, political engagement of these younger players. And, uh, and that's different than uh, for Serena, but I, but, and that will be part of their pop culture identity. Um, But I think there'll be those kinds of players. I don't know, Seb Korda, if he really, if he really starts to climb and, 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 and get some big wins and, you know, I'm sure he's going to, spend some time in, uh, you know, on the main uh, stadium courts, uh, regardless of his ranking when the U.S. Open comes around. So um, uh, Americans, like like everybody else, they want to watch uh, great tennis players who are from their own country. So you, talking about how how these players have such a social media presence, how they're such media icons, even beyond tennis. And and that's not just Serena, but in the case of Naomi Osaka and increasingly Coco Goff as well. Um, You compare Serena a lot in the book with people like Michelle, Michelle Obama and Beyonce and and Rihanna a little bit. And there's just a lot of similarities there. How does being a sportswoman set Serena apart from, from people like that in terms of, 
how how much of a star or how much of an icon she can be the the reach she has like what's the difference between sports and non-sports in that category right Right. well i don't think being a tennis star is ever going to be uh uh, have the level of celebrity uh, as being a tv star or uh, a pop music star i do think we uh entered uh an era and and serena has uh, partly uh, been a force uh, for this in which uh, one of the ways uh, women um, are increasingly uh, expressing themselves is through athletics. And um, that's partly, uh, you know, women uh, becoming uh, sports stars in, in sports that are uh, garnering more interest, but it's also, I think a more personal thing. I think it's, it's changing what it uh, uh, norms uh, having to do with, you know, body shape and beauty and all of these things where you have sports stars with uh, not the, the bodies of fashion models appearing on the covers of fashion magazines and, and women in the, you know, most fashionable precincts of, you know, New York and Los Angeles walking around like they're about to go, uh, Uh, you know, have a tennis practice, right, in their leggings and tank tops uh, and sneakers. So this is just a a change in, you know, what it is to be a a healthy uh, woman who feels good about herself. This is this is this is different than it would have been 30 or 40 years ago by a, a long stretch. So you mentioned Venus a little bit and you talk about Venus some in the book, but Venus is not a lot in the book. And I was a little surprised by that, not in a bad way, but I just, I've come to expect that whenever someone says Serena, they're about, they're soon to say Serena and Venus because they've gone hand in hand for so long and been breaking down the same barriers, accomplishing some similar things. But do you think that, that Serena and Venus are too often treated as a unit to the detriment of understanding them individually? I don't know. I think, you know, I think that was more true 10 years ago uh, when Venus was also, you know, at the top of the game and at the top of her game, a kind of, you know, space has opened up in recent years with Venus having health issues uh, and her aspects of her game all along being a little more wobbly than Serena's. Um, and so Serena and also Serena has sought the spotlight and has a comfort level in the spotlight that I don't think Venus has. I mean, I, you know, I think what I write about in the book is I think a couple of years ago, Venus, uh, in these, uh, post, uh, match pressers was really becoming a kind of sports philosopher, uh, she was really thinking out loud about all kinds of things, about what attracts us to sports, what it is about tennis that makes the game so engaging and whatnot. And then she had this terrible car accident in Florida uh, where she was immediately, and it turned out wrongly, blamed. Uh, and, and, she, and she got much more silent uh, after that. And it was too bad because I think she's an extraordinary woman. But I think, you know, I to the extent that, you know, I, I, I wrote about them together. Certainly Venus has been sort of like a third parent 
uh, uh, for Serena. Serena still talks about how Venus takes care of me and their body language when they're together uh, at a tournament. Uh, You know, they're so, so close and you can't fake that, right? And here, I mean, the one thing I could never really, the mystery uh, that I could not begin to solve in the book is here is uh, Venus Williams is, is set to be the greatest tennis player uh, of her time. And she's vanquished and quite quickly by her younger sister. I mean, that is just to me like, <laughs> you know, like how she processed that and how they remained as close as they did. And, uh, that to me is like some essential mystery about them that um, I guess maybe one or the other will eventually write about, I hope. Um, but to me, that's extraordinary. Yeah, it's certainly certainly unique and difficult to imagine. Um, talking about Venus and we're having this conversation the day after Roger Federer lost in the quarterfinals at Wimbledon. Uh, it seems like... Uh, with, with Federer, with Murray, with both Venus and Serena, there's a constant talk about whether they're going to retire, when, if, if not now, when uh, it comes up at every press conference. And then every single time it happens, it spurs this social media tabloid kind of series of reactions where the player says, oh, why is everyone clamoring for me to retire? I'm going to retire on, on my own terms. Someone writes a column about how they should be allowed to retire on their own terms. Dot, dot, dot. You know what I'm talking about. Right. Um, it seems like it's a, it, it's a natural question to ask. If, if you're talking to Roger Federer after a loss at Wimbledon, you can ask, hey, Roger, are we going to see you next year? What does this mean for your future? Um, having followed Serena around for a year and presumably heard a number of those questions after, after Serena occasionally lost matches, do you think there really is a clamor for older players to retire? Or is this just sort of like a like a sort of involuntary media, social media reaction that isn't really based on a lot. It's just based on, you know, continuing to have the conversation, keeping tabs on what the players' plans are. Yeah. I mean, I think it's sort of nat. It's a natural conversation in tennis as it would be in any other sport. Uh, You know, they, they, you know, Murray and Federer and the Williams sisters are nearing the end whenever that end is, they're, they're, they're nearing it. Right. Um, You know, I think for me, it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see which of them continue uh, to find pleasure in competing when competing means they're not likely to ever win a big tournament again. In other words, I mean, it's interesting to me about Murray is he seems to have found a kind, I, you know, I wrote, at the time he was getting this hip uh, operation, I wrote that, you know, there's no evidence that he could possibly come back and be a top 10 tennis player after he's had this surgery. Um, So if that's the case, is he willing to come back and be a top 50 tennis player? Is he still going to get the sort of, uh, satisfaction from the game that he got when he when he thought I can win went into a tournament thinking I am someone who's going to and can win this tournament so that to me would be the question in both uh Murray's presser after he lost and in Fed's presser and I thought Federer handled it so well really 
you know, there, there really is a kind of adjustment, right? Like I, uh, if I'm going to not get to the uh, semis uh, and uh, it, w- w- is it still worth it for me? And I think that's kind of the question for them, right? Because I think for all athletes, it's really hard to walk away. This has been their life and it'll never be the same. It's just never going to be the same as hearing 18,000 people screaming and stomping and cheering for you. That'll, you've made more money than you could have ever dreamed of making, uh, but you'll never have that again. And, and you're 40. It's not like you're 75, (laughs) you're 40. And it's a tough adjustment for a, a lot of athletes and across all sports. So uh, I can understand their uh, reluctance to say goodbye, but, you know, I think they'll all do it uh, sooner rather than later. And they'll, they'll do it in control. They'll have, they'll announce they're going to have a last year tour or something. I don't know. They'll, they'll figure out some way to go out with style and grace. That's my guess. You mentioned in the book, um, Ken Dryden's memoir, the game, he's a hockey right. player. As I'm guessing many of my listeners don't know. Um, and you also said a few minutes ago that you'd like to hear the story of Serena and Venus's relationship from one of them someday, if they tell the story or write the book or whatnot. Um, but at the same time, some of the things we're talking about with social media and people creating their own their own images for, for public consumption, it makes it seem like those books are going to be rarer going forward. I guess there's not a lot of books like that that are that good already, anyway, um, before yeah. social media. But um, I mean, do you think there's any any hope, or are we going to well, get my, memoirs we, that really give us an insight into players at the end of their career? My my wish, my hope is that they take a, a page from uh, Andre Agassi and get themselves really good ghostwriters who can write and who uh, will only take such an assignment. Uh, if they really get to have the full, rich story. I mean, Agassiz's story was uh, fascinating uh, to begin with, of course, but I think these other players have fascinating stories too. And that, you know, you, 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 will, you allow a real uh, writer to help you um, and not simply just take your dictation, but really, uh, report it out and ask you tough questions and come away with a book like uh, Agassiz's Open, which, you know, is one of the, you know, greatest books about tennis uh, there is. So if they're smart uh, and they're brave, uh, they will uh, they will produce those kinds of books. But I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it, they, you know, they get documentaries uh, <laughs> about them now. Um uh, that they get to control. So I don't know, will they be willing to relinquish that sort of control? I mean, that's really at the heart, right, of what we saw with the Osaka uh, withdrawing from the press conference. You know, my own feeling about that controversy was I wish she had released her second statement first. I wish she had simply said I have uh, uh, had some serious bouts of depression and uh, they, that affects my game, and I uh, am going to withdraw from the French Open. I think by first uh, saying she's not going to appear before the press because it creates anxiety, 
first of all, anxiety is not depression. They're two different things. Um, and one, one more, uh, uh, easy to overcome anxiety than depression. Um, and, uh, you know, what she did was that she's continued to do, uh, engage with media that she controls, whether it's an interview with one of her, uh, Japanese media sponsors or a Netflix series, or so it's really a question of control. And what's happened is as a result of these players coming up and, and really having their engagement uh, with the public through social media, they're in complete control. Uh, and that uh, situations where they're not in control uh, uh, creates anxiety for them. Now, sir, uh, you've been at uh, tennis press conferences. Uh, these are not presidential press conferences. These are not people shouting uh, obnoxious and difficult uh, and provocative questions at you. They're, they're often quite uh, boring. Um, and they're, but for the most part, after you've lost the match, uh, it's a, it, uh, reporters are really tiptoeing around you and they're empathizing and they're, you know, uh, these are not uh, contentious uh, environments by and large. I mean, if, if Naomi Osaka doesn't want to be asked why her clay court game isn't as good as her hard court game, I, that seems strikes me as a pretty legitimate question and the kind of question that's been asked forever of athletes and the kind of question that doesn't bring on depression. So, uh, yeah. I, I mean, I feel like, and, you know, I, I think it also was that leading with the I'm not doing press also just uh, pointed a glaring spotlight on the haves and have nots in tennis. I mean, there are very few players in tennis who can afford to pay thousands of dollars in daily fines uh, and uh, they don't have the option of opting out. I think she also should have, you know, tipped off the, French open officials uh, a little bit that she was going to do this rather than posting something on social media again, where she was in control, uh, which led to their overreaction because they were uh, ticked off that uh, they hadn't been consulted. So, um, you know, my guess is she's going to do media at the U S open. Yeah. She's going to play well there because it's her kind of place and this will sort of fade. Yeah, I hope so. Um, Definitely. So, okay. One last question, Jerry, before I let you go. Um, you chose seeing Serena. Let's say hypothetically some publisher comes to you and says they want to make a whole series of this seeing tennis players business. Um, who's, who's the next tennis player that you'd want to follow around and, and study like this for a year? <laughs> well, the, the true answer is no one. Um, <laughs> I think you do this once and, uh, you know, uh, but I hope someone younger uh, than me uh, uh, writes a book about Coco Golf at some point. I think it's an extraordinary uh, story. And uh, I think, you know, she's just a, such a, just a vibrant uh, personality. I got to watch her first uh, tour level match in Miami when I was uh, reporting this uh, book, uh, 
against her uh, pal, Katie McNally, on a you know sitting on a bleacher seat. It could have been like watching uh, how you'd watch your high, local high school team play tennis. Uh, and my my wife had flown down and uh, and joined me for the weekend. And it was just you, there was just something right there that you knew. I mean, obviously she'd been talked about as a junior, but her court presence and the kind of aura she had on court, it was just amazing. And, uh, you know, I, I, God willing, she's going to be stay healthy and stay focused and, and be a great tennis star and some young, uh, tennis writer will write about her. Let's hope so. I'm always, always cheering for more good books about tennis, particularly good books about Women's tennis. Oh, that, I, I have to ask you one more bonus question then. Sure. Um, someone asked Ben Rothenberg on Twitter yesterday or the day before um, what his favorite book about women's tennis was. And he gave an answer. I think he said uh, Lee Na's autobiography, but he seemed not that sure about it. And the, the follow-up comments on Twitter were not very inspiring, leaving me to not feel that great about the state of writing about women's tennis. So um, what's your pick? Well, I would go back and and read uh, uh, Billie Jean King's, uh, you know, first book about, you know, the formation of the WTA and uh, and how that all went down. That was that was a really, really good uh, glimpse of 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 sort of the form formative years of women's tennis. And I look I'm looking forward to her new book, too. Uh, I mean, she's an extraordinary woman. Yeah, it's a it's a fantastic summer for for tennis books. With yeah, yeah. Chris Clary's got a Federer book coming out too, so it's going to be uh, going to be a good summer. Absolutely. So that's our that's our combined recommendation. We can bookend the history of women's tennis so far, or professional women's tennis, with uh, Billie Jean King's book and then your book on Serena. So. Um, I've been talking with Jerry Marjorati. He's the author of the new book, Seeing Serena, as well as a contributor to The New Yorker and Racket Magazine. Jerry, thanks so much for talking with me. Yep, it's been really a pleasure. Take care. Yeah, you too. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and uh, we'll see you next time.